So for those of you who are not familiar, this beginning of a Dhamma talk in this kind of a formal way is a way of indicating to all of us that this is just not a normal kind of chit-chat, hangout talk. <laughs> it's, a, it's an introduction to a Dhamma uh, talk. And so it's a way of, of indicating for oneself that it's very helpful that one's own attention is inwardly directed in a way where you're clear and you're uh, responsive, you're present with what you hear, what's arising. So as I was saying earlier today, this sets up a sacred arrangement, a sacred relationship where when I do this, I know that this is a time for me to speak on the Dhamma. This is a time for me to speak about things which encourage awakening. This is a time for me to speak about um, the path and the fruit. And it's not so much a time for me to talk about my own views and opinions or my personal likes and dislikes. And so it's a specific kind of talking. And so in this, um, sometimes I feel um, energized, you know, just like there's something that moves through me that is actually, I'm a vehicle for. It's just, I don't know where it comes from, but it just comes through. In the same way, each of us, everyone here, is encouraged to be upright, to be attentive, to be alert, and to have 90% of your attention focused inwardly. And so when that, when that is the case, then when you're focused inwardly, your body and your heart and your mind responds when you listen to things, and they are true. There's a kind of relaxation, a kind of aha kind of feeling that happens. You don't need to think about it. You know when something resonates as being true. And so in that way, there's a monologue that is apparent, but a dialogue that's actual. Because apparently I'm the only one that's speaking in this room. But the reality is, is, is that when everyone is attending inwardly in that kind of a way, there's a complete responsive interaction between what it is that you hear and how you feel and respond about it. Okay? And so when that's the case, that's the optimum conditions for listening to the Dhamma. And so this little chant, which is a, a little chant we do, is a signal. All right, this is what we're doing now. And so it's a time to get your posture in a way where you're upright and relaxed and to focus 90% of your attention inwardly on how you feel about what it is that you hear. All right? So this is the beginning of a non-residential retreat. And the theme of the non-residential retreat is working with the ten paramitas. And the ten paramitas can be a, a platform for discussing and talking about the way of cultivating ground in our life, in our practice, so that we're able to deal with the variety of things that arise. Now, there are just enormous amounts of complexity that is available in our contemporary life. There's no end of it. And 
It is often the case that people find going on retreats enormously fruitful because a retreat is set up specifically to make it much more simple. Food is offered. There are very few decisions to make during the retreat. Oftentimes, you know, it's how much broccoli you have and whether you go on this walking path or that walking path and whether you do some yoga in the morning or do some running in the afternoon. But the enormous complexity of what is our daily lives in terms of responding to family and situation and work and emails and information and decision-making is simplified. And as a result of that simplification, we can attend our, our, our 100% of our attention to the immediacy of what's arising in our mind-body process in relationship to the present moment without having to multitask that around all these other duties and responsibilities. And so for that reason, it's useful to clear some space and to actually make the time to go on retreat. Because to have the opportunity to focus in that kind of way enables our attention to uh, to attend completely to our mind-body responses to what's arising. However, how often do people get to go on retreat? And so the problem is, and the challenge can be, is, is, is that if our, if our practice is based on going on retreats, then there's a sense of dissatisfaction or frustration or lack or incompleteness or something not quite right about all of the other time that's not in retreat. And any time we do something like that, where we split between something that we like and value and something that we find more challenging and don't like, as much or find uh, not as satisfying, then we have a gap. And that gap is an incredibly rich opportunity itself for practice. Okay? So the whole point of having a non-residential retreat is to create context in the morning and the evening time where we can discuss things, where we can meditate, where we can talk about what's arising. Okay? In a framework of Dharma, and yet having to negotiate the 10,000 things of a life in terms of relationship and communication and work and details and information overload. And is it then possible to bring these themes into our daily life? And when we focus on them, how does it change the way we experience things? Okay? And so when we do that, then we start to close that gap between the retreat, which is the high and the holy and the sacred, and the everyday life, which is difficult, painful, (laughs) something we try to avoid, (laughs) and realize that the Dhamma is actually in the present moment, and how we respond to it is we uh, bring whatever qualities and strengths and skills that we have to bear in the present moment to whatever is arising. So it's an opportunity. And we can see what we do with that. Okay. So I thought of the ten paramitas only because to me it seems like a general kind of way of framing the ground that we can begin to focus on in order to give us the resources to deal with the whole nine yards of what it is to be a human being and the complexity of our lives today. So each day talk about each theme in much more depth in terms of how to develop it, how to work with it, how to focus on it, how to consider it, how to bring it into our everyday life. 
So the first topic of generosity or dhamma is the first perfection. It's the first paramita. And the reason why is because it creates a basis that gives us access to our own goodness. And it's really hard to overstate how important this is. This is so utterly fundamental in being able to deal with what arises that it's important to recognize that whenever there's an opportunity to cultivate generosity, it's important not to miss the opportunity because what it enables and what it enables is a direct access to our own goodness and that access then gives us the fortitude and the stamina and the ballast to be able to negotiate some of the territory that arises, which is not easy. So in this culture, I don't know what it is about this culture, we think that in order to be generous, you have to give a million dollars. You know, there's something, I don't know what it is about this culture that has this absolutely extreme association with generosity. But that's not what is intended. Giving a million dollars is not what's intended by generosity. What's intended by generosity is the willingness to give at all. Okay? It can be a flower. It can be a smile. It could be an incense. It could be a moment of attention. Just a moment of attention can be an act of generosity. It could be a willingness to listen Okay, it's not equated with large sums of money necessarily. But I don't know what has happened in this culture where those two things seem to have gotten wired up together. Where when you think about generosity, immediately the panic is, well, I don't have enough money that I can give. Okay, so we need to unwire that one and then rewire the other one, which is that generosity is about the willingness to give anything. Not just money. Okay? Information, time, presence, patience, kindness. The willingness not to act on one's negative perceptions is an act of generosity. Okay? Sharing food. It doesn't have to be a five-star meal. It can be a biscuit, a cracker, a, a cake, you know, a carrot. It's like, it can be really little. But as we begin to bring forward these gestures of giving a little, whenever the occasion arises, we begin to have that sense of the abundance of what it is to live where there's a sense of enough, where there's a feeling of one's own sense of self-respect and self-worth, and where there's a sense of that actually there is more than just one person in this universe. Okay? Now, there's another thing that happens in this culture, which is, is that the culture is organized around a highly individualistic sense of things. What I want, what I feel, what I think, what I don't want, are of absolute importance. And that's a cultural assumption and value. It's not held across the board. And there are plenty of people and plenty of situations where one can really begin to see that when one starts looking at the other people's happiness, 
as a part of one's own happiness, then there's something else that begins to happen in terms of one's own understanding and capacity, which is very beautiful. So generosity shifts this whole individualistic um, tendency. It begins to give us an access to our own goodness, which gives us the fortitude to work with what arises. It releases the grasping tendencies around desire and the perpetual sense that there isn't enough, which is also a culturally embedded value system, that there isn't enough. And all of these things create a ground. And that ground is something that we can rest in and relax in. And that relaxation is something that absolutely supports us in our practice. It supports devotion. It supports a sense of ease and well-being. It supports community. It supports health in our families. It has all kinds of immediate uh, correlations. So dana is the first. The second one is sila, and that's morality. And without any sense of strong container around what's skillful and unskillful, we don't have a whole lot to work on. In fact, we have almost zero. So one of the things that differentiates the human realm from the animal realm is is that in the human realm, they have the capacity to make skillful choices. In the animal realm, they are only, most only, following instinct. Now, I've certainly seen plenty of examples of animal behavior that makes the human race a little bit uh, not so uh, exalted, you know, so it's not an absolute thing. But the general criteria, the difference between human beings and animals is that animals generally follow instinct. So, for example, it's rarely the case in the animal realm that animals can choose not to procreate. Okay? There's a whole instinctual cycle that follows, and that's what happens. Likewise, if they feel threatened, it's rare that they can choose not to be aggressive. Whereas within the human realm, we have the capacity to develop those choices. It's not always that we exercise them, but we have the capacity to develop them. Okay? So one of the principal components of morality is it's centered around the whole idea of harmlessness. All of it is centered around harmlessness, not harming. And again, it is hard to overstate how important it is to take that as an incredibly important value to cultivate. Because when we are interested in living a life that's harmless, genuinely, authentically, wholeheartedly, that will require that we investigate our habits and our speech, our ways of being with ourselves and with each other, in order that the habits which are conditioned and habitual are investigated and begin to be uprooted. And one of the things, again in this culture, that we need to recognize is is, is that one of the places where we need to practice this the most is with ourselves. If anybody else treated us the way we treated ourselves, if anybody else did that, we would be absolutely able to sue them for libel, for abuse. You know, it's just incredible the way we judge, the way we condemn, the way we criticize, the way we slander. 
And these are habits to wake up to. They're not to follow. They are not conducive. It is not humbling to behave in this manner. And as we wake up in our own minds and hearts to the way that we do this to ourselves, then and only then are we in a position to really see how we're doing this to other people. So if we don't see how we're pressurizing or demanding or insisting beyond our own capacity the way we do that with ourselves, then we will not catch it when we're doing it with other people. So if we affirm harmlessness as an essential precept and see that all of the other precepts are in some way or another linked to it in different aspects of our lives, that also creates a ground and a container where we can reflect. I don't know if any of you have been with a person who has done something that's been grossly unskillful, but I have. And sitting with somebody who's done something that's been grossly violent, you know, their minds are not peaceful, you know. And so we have to actually affirm that and brighten that and cultivate that. So virtue is the second of the ten paramitas. The third one is nikama, which is renunciation or letting go. And again, you know, in this culture, it's just brilliant because everything in the culture is saying accumulate, get more, have more, you know. My friend Barbara Brodsky, she just came back from trying to, um, well, not trying, she managed to shift her mother into an assisted living space. And her mother was in a two-bedroom condo, and they had to clean out the condo in order to sell it. And she described what it was like cleaning out the condo because it was stuffed to the gills. And I, my father's the same, and I know many people who are the same. There's the sense is that the more you have, the better off, the safer, the more comfortable you'll be. And so we do that with things, but we also do that with habits. You know, the more that I have what I want, not only in terms of stuff, but in terms of the way I want to relate or the way I want to eat or the way I want to this or the way I want to that, the happier I'll be. And so Nikama, the whole principle of renunciation, is going against that grain and beginning to say, well, how is it? It's not an act of sacrifice to give up things that we don't need or things that are no longer useful or things that are cluttering our space. Okay? That's true with physical things, but that's also true with habits. And so this whole principle of letting go is a fundamental principle within the teachings of how do we shift our focus of attention so that we're able to gracefully and graciously let it go. You know, getting what one's not is actually not the most important thing in the world. You know, it might not feel like that in the moment, but in perspective, it's not the most important thing in the world. But we have to train ourselves to remember that because the culture is saying the opposite. You know, every billboard you see is a saying, you have to get what you want. And if you get what you want, you'll be happy. And if you don't get what you want, you won't be happy. So there are very strong habits that are not just personal but cultural embedded in our society where this is very much going against the stream. You know, going against the grain. The fourth one is wisdom. And wisdom is obvious in the sense that if we have the right perspective around things, then it has a completely different effect on how it affects us than if we don't. 
And so, you know, the wisdom component of things has to do with the beginning of the Eightfold Path of seeing things in the right view and having the right perspective. And I'm sure you have also experienced the same as I. You know, I have experienced absolutely horrendous things and haven't been a problem. And I've been experiencing things where the situation externally was ideal and it was an absolute horrendous thing. (laughs) Because what's happening is the way that I'm relating to it. Okay, So the mind is the forerunner, is a key principle in the Buddhist teachings. Because when the mind is clear and the attitudes are correct, then what follows after that is completely different than when it's not. So establishing the right perspective is not an insignificant element to the path. Energy is something that all of us need to understand how to come into the right relationship with. Now, I don't know what your experience was, and and maybe we'll be able to check in later, of what it felt like to do standing meditation in this kind of way for just a few minutes before we sat. For me, I came in very, very tired, you know. But after standing for 10 minutes like that, my whole body was shifted. And so understanding energy and the right way of bringing the right energy to practice is also something that we need to develop ground with, capacity with, because energy is constantly changing. Now, I've had an energy issue for the last 20 years, and so my energy is just really, really changing. And so it's, it's, I've had to work with it. I've had to because I haven't had much choice. And so it has forced me to develop skills that I wouldn't have developed skills if I hadn't had that kind of a, you know, it's like, you know, an elephant sitting on top of you, you know, kind of thing where you just press and nothing else would work. So I had to develop skill. But energy, if we get that one right, there's a lot that we have going for us. Okay? Patience. Now... Up until a few years ago, I would have said I didn't have any. (laughs) You know, I'm such a strong-willed person and so clever and so able to manipulate situations according to my needs and my wants and my not-wants that I just would completely bypass patients because who had time for it? And then, lo and behold, I was put into situations like many of us are, where it's like there was no way I could manipulate. There was no way I could be clever. It was like, forget it. And one of the ways that that happened was when I was in the bush in Australia. So the Australian bush is, I love it. But it can be really harsh. And so I was in a place in a hermitage. There was no air conditioning. There was no electricity. And in the hot season, it was 110 or 115 degrees, okay? And after a certain amount of heat, it's almost as if your brains turn to liquid and dribble out your ears. It's like you just can't think the same kind of a way. And all of my, you know, get it my way, get people to do it for me, you know, kind of tricks, or I'm so clever I can outsmart this, forget it. Just forget it. So nobody, I mean, I lived in the monastery for 12 years at that point, and the sisters tried a lot to teach me, but they, <laughs> I was too clever. <laughs> but I wasn't too clever for the bush. The bush really began to show me what patience is, okay? 
So patient endurance is considered the supreme austerity. There is no other austerity greater than patient endurance. And most of us hate it until we actually understand its value. And for me, you know, for decades, decades, not one or two, but more than that, it wasn't patient endurance, it was impatient endurance, you know. It was teeth gritting, gut wrenching, how do I get myself out of this kind of a scenario. Until again I learned how to soften around the resistance and allow it just to be patient endurance. Now, patient endurance is actually an enormous asset because there's all kinds of things that just sort themselves out if you give it time, you know. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to sort it. You don't have to negotiate it. You don't have to discuss it. You don't have to workshop it. You just need to give it some time. You know, but we're not good at that. And I can say for myself, you know, absolutely, you know, I was not good at this. But it's nevertheless a virtue to cultivate. The seventh one is on such our truthfulness and such a is one of the, for me, it has been one of the, such a wisdom, Dhanasila, such a, and metta have been the primary ones. Such a is truthfulness. And that has to do with the willingness to be absolutely honest about what's actually happening. It's not what's supposed to be happening or what I'd like to be happening or what I think my identity would be satisfied if we're happening. It what is actually happening. And it is so humiliating. You know, so much of the time. Because what is actually happening is usually completely different than my idea about what is supposed to be or should or what my identity is saying needs to be happening in order for it to be affirmed. And nevertheless, this one feeds absolutely directly into being able to respond skillfully. Because if we're not present with what's actually happening, there's very little capacity we have to respond to it skillfully. You know, it's kind of like a, I'm not sure what the right metaphor would be, but you don't have your decks on, the the cards are not on the table. You don't know you're working with. You're working in a black box. You've got some imagination of what's happening or some fantasy going. But trying to negotiate a fantasy is completely different than trying to negotiate reality. So then aditana is the persistence element or determination element and that also is phenomenally helpful and again it's not something because many of us are not that skilled in patience we don't know how to bring persistence and determination into a right relationship so persistence and determination is not um, bulldozing it's not flattening it's a persistent and consistent effort to maintain a value or a practice, or a willingness to do something, and to keep coming back to that, no matter what happens, no matter how many times we get distracted, no matter how many times we get hijacked, no matter how many different things come up, no matter how confusing it gets, we come back to that, and whatever that is, and we can decide what that is. But that quality, to keep coming back, then also gives this breadth and depth and ground that stabilizes us in our practice. 
The ninth one, which for me should be right up there also with the first one, is metta, loving-kindness. And part of the reason why is because, again, many of us have a very deep-seated lack of self-love. And we are harsh with ourselves. And so it's not just a kind of good idea. It's an absolute essential quality that needs to be cultivated in order for us to begin to get some purchase in all of this material and work with it in a way which is skillful. That's another one that cannot be overstated how important it is. And it's another one that cannot be overstated how it's important that we find a way that we can direct this quality to ourselves. Because until we can, in a genuine and authentic way, we are not really in a position to share it with anybody else. You can't give something you don't have. You can't share something you don't know. And so again, that brings us back into the tender and humbling, gentle and deep process of being present with what is happening in the moment and responding to it with skill. And then the tenth one is upeka or equanimity. Now, life goes up and it goes down, it goes round and round and round, and most of the time we go up with the ups and down with the downs and round and round with the round and rounds. And so Upeka is about, well, what actually is still? You know? What actually isn't moving? You know, what actually isn't fussed or flustered? What isn't... What's just grounded? And so we can find that as a quality of an attitude to bring forward, but we can also find that as a way of being with ourselves and our practice. And that's another one that I didn't know, you know. I come from material, you know. So everything was absolutely extraordinary, completely, totally, you know, ordinary or just normal was just not happening, you know. But again, I've learned to just see, well, drama queen is another thing that arises and passes. It actually isn't my essential nature. And this other stuff is actually beneath and holding this that goes up and down, you know, so I have more sense of it now. So these are the ten perfections, these are the ten paramitas, and each one of them gives a platform for talking about practice in ways which we can see how they affect us. And so I thought that it would be a a way that we could use as a way of focusing our practice for a week or for six days and then see what comes of it. So those are the reflections for this evening. And... Again, the encouragement is is to listen in a way where you're not believing anything that I'm saying, but just attending inwardly to that inner response of, does this resonate? If it resonates, then that's really something to pay attention to. And if it doesn't resonate, let it go. Absolutely no need to pick it up. But if you ever hear something me saying that sounds like I'm going deeply against your deepest understanding of what the truth is, don't just let it go. It's too important to protect the sacred relationship. If I'm speaking that has gone off, then make sure that you find a way at some point or another, probably not in the moment, but then another time, to bring it up with me. Because otherwise, the sacredness of this relationship is not respected. All right? So, that would be my sense of things. And 
here we are. All right? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.